where it gets fun though is a mom and pop shop with two owners and a small supply of interesting customized clothing you can make an nft collection now why not hello everyone we're glad you're back for another metamind 3.0 episode today douglas erickson joins us to discuss the world of blockchain how businesses are using it what to consider when deciding whether the blockchain is right for your company the challenges that come with the technology and the digital divide. Doug is an NFT strategist and blockchain expert. He is the NFT marketplace strategist at Ultra where he is immersed in the decentralized gaming industry through one of the most impeccable platforms available. Doug started Chain Mosaic, which has partnerships all over the world and offers strategic services, content creation, Web3 marketing, blockchain development and more. Anyone who wants to build in the Web3 space needs to know what blockchain is and what role it plays in the industry. Welcome to Web3 and the Metaverse. Your journey starts here. Always nice to start with a few icebreakers. I think it kind of sets, sets the tone. So, you know, something I'll ask um, all, generally all guests is, is there a quote or thought that you live your life by? There's a few. I, I never have one that carries me through all of my life. The two main ones are this too shall pass, whether it be good or bad. And then my favorite one at the moment that, that I'm repeating a lot is be curious, not judgmental. I like that. And like it's also that. like there's something, you know, like this too shall pass. I also have like something related to that is the sun will shine tomorrow. You know, exactly. it's coming up. Yeah. One that I heard, I went to a Tony Robbins conference years ago. And I like um, one of his quotes is where focus goes, energy flows. I like that. So, and then just some just some random ones. Uh, would you rather be an Olympic gold medalist or an astronaut and why? Astronaut. Not even a, not even a second to uh, guess. No, astronaut. Yeah. I've always wanted to go to space. I actually applied to be one of the... Um, one of those, um, I think it was the first hundred to go to Mars, and that was like years ago. <laughs> no um, way, really? That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, but I had no actual skills, so they needed people who could be useful up there. <laughs> I was like, I could play guitar. For sure, I'll, <laughs> so, I'm, I'm an entertainer. Yeah. I'm gonna entertain. <laughs> yeah. At one point, I wanted to study the radio waves that made up the microwave, cosmic microwave background. So that's incredible. That's whoa. That's beyond me. <laughs> that that's what i wanted to study after I finished studying music i wanted to understand how frequencies um sort of held the universe together essentially interesting man that's yeah that's um some cool insight definitely astronaut and, <laughs> yeah for sure and would you rather travel back in time to meet your ancestors or to the future to meet your descendants and why future future 100 we know what happened in the past i prefer like working out mysteries rather than reliving past events like the past has happened and um you know there's a lot of rules if if all the movies are anything to go by there's a lot of rules of time travel uh into the past <laughs> but sure. i find if you like you look at all the movies with time travel into the past like don't change anything and then you look at futurama and you're like that looks rad i'll do that rather mm. and then i guess that's a good segue i mean you know talking about the future this is kind of the discussion so we, I understand, obviously, you work quite intensely helping companies figure out their blockchain strategy. Uh, this means you see a lot of action behind the scenes, but also means yeah. you see a lot of people falling victim to the Web3 hype and the promise of a globally decentralized paradise. 
So before we get into the how and why of blockchain imp implementation, there's a few things that I want to know. So decentralization is cool because it means everyone operates on a more even playing field, digitally at least. Um, uh, but even though Web3 has the potential to close the digital divide, we're still far away from everyone having access. So one, how on earth will blockchain actually close the digital divide? And two, why aren't we there yet? Good questions. Uh, number one, I don't think blockchain can close the digital divide. Um, I don't think it can um, make it worse either. The reason I say that is, you know, people are the ones who decide where to implement the technology and how to implement the technology. So just having innovation doesn't mean all the problems go away. We have to point it in the right direction. Um, so, so I think that, you know, blockchain has the power to help the digital divide in a big way, but we need to actually prioritize that as a, as a, as a solution. So how we would do that is obviously first and foremost, blockchain has the ability to bank the bankless. And I think, you know, people take for granted how important having a bank account is, what it allows you to do, um, especially in, you know, the capitalist world that we have in the first world, you know, obviously in the third world as well. But our, par our paradigm right now is built on uh, bank accounts. And if we can replace that with something that's far more accessible and requires far less um, oversight to function efficiently, then we open up very very big opportunities for the marginalized people in the world um and i think that that's one of the first goals of um what can i say bridging the digital divide um it's not just about having the latest apple iphone or having the nicest mac in a rural area in awanda it's about having access to the technologies that make your life more convenient and that provide those opportunities so yeah, uh, to answer your first question, no, I don't think blockchain can bridge the digital divide, but if we point it in that direction, I think it has potential to have a bigger impact than most technologies we've seen so far. And it's far more flexible and adaptable, so it would be ideal for that solution. Why aren't we there yet? I suppose, I suppose one of the sacrifices of innovation is that the priority goes to those who innovate. So you get some real innovators in the marginalized areas, but they don't have the exposure or the access geographically, um, financially. You know, a lot of the innovation happens in the first world and there's not much incentive for the first world to take that to the third world outside of, you know, good nature or, or uh, penetrating a new market. And the sad truth of it is without that incentive, it gets left behind very quickly. So that innovation in a big way and that sort of, what you find is that most of the people who are intent on bridging the digital divide, and I speak very generally, obviously, I speak under correction, but most of the people who are set on doing so come from those areas. And they happen to be the lucky few who focus on bridging that divide. I mean, myself included, I'm from South Africa, which is why I have a personal interest in it. But I don't meet many people from America, or the United Kingdom, or you know, Canada, France, New Zealand, any of the more advanced nations. I don't see many of them gearing up and standing in line to help the poorer nations like South Africa. And South Africa is not even nearly the poorest nation who requires assistance. So I think that as we see more innovators and more um, ambitious people come out of the third world nations, and we are, as technology progresses, so do the platforms that give us that opportunity to innovate. As those progress, I think that those innovators will come out of the woodworks and they'll, they'll bring that much needed focus back to bridging the digital divide in these third world countries. Um, and that's kind of one of my goals is to be part of that group. I guess for, you know, for the, for the audience listening that 
they might not quite understand what is the digital divide. You know, uh, can you maybe just explain that from a high level perspective to give people insight into uh, what we're talking about, actually? Sure. I mean, so I'll, I'll break it down to the most simple version I can is um, let's say that you live in a poor neighborhood and two houses down starts the, the rich neighborhood and the rich neighborhood has um, very fast Wi-Fi, has um you know, the latest devices from Android to Mac and Apple um, and uh, what what else? Let's say technology to build on a level that their houses are two story and three story, et cetera. And it costs a lot less for them to access those technologies. Whereas you in your neighborhood, two houses down, literally have no running water. Um, so that's your first priority. You're not interested in the latest iPhone because all you really have is a, you know, black and white screen, um, Nokia 5140. Um, which doesn't have the capabilities to FaceTime or to to access Google Docs or Slack or the you know the workflow tools that we take for granted um, and sometimes even swear at because they're not doing what we want them to do. Um, a lot of people have never even heard of them, and being able to coordinate on a level um, where you can build up, uh, you can build on an idea or an innovation, an innovation you've created in an in a structured way using the technology that the first world takes for granted, it's huge, huge opportunity. And um, being from, an, let's say back to the analogy, being from a neighborhood that doesn't have those advantages, which neighborhood do you think is going to build quicker? And the neighborhood obviously with the advanced technology is going to build a lot quicker. And um, most of the time probably get most of the resources from the, the neighborhood two, two houses down. So um, that's an illustration of the digital divide. Essentially, it's just calculating the populations that don't have ready access to technology, especially these days, devices that have the capacity to connect to the World Wide Web. Yeah, I mean, that's something we also uh, have taken quite seriously in, you know, from a digital grind perspective, you know, we build obviously websites and apps and uh, we try focus on accessibility. So it's often people of determination, like if they have visual impairments or auditory impairments, but it's also if they have like access to information you know, how do you reach the people that doesn't that don't have like a very fast um, internet connection? You know, and how do you take all of that in consideration? And I think that's one of the big, obviously, challenges that we have from a Web3 perspective is accessibility. You know, and it's going to be interesting how that develops over time. And you know, I'm sure you you'll be part of strategizing and helping companies obviously get there quicker. But it's going to be interesting to to see. I'm hoping so. So just in terms of like the work, obviously, given the work that you've been involved in, you, you value, I know you value blockchain. Um, and I know, obviously, it can have a lot of um, uh, impact for businesses. So in terms of, you know, in, in terms of what businesses need to think about from their business models with related to uh, related to blockchain, like what are the superpowers of blockchain for businesses? How does blockchain drive uh, social economic change for a business? Can you speak to that for a bit? Sure. Um, first of all, it depends on what business you have. Um, so you, you, obviously businesses take many shapes and sizes and forms and some businesses really don't require optimization from blockchain in its current form. But for the most part, you could easily turn to blockchain to solve some very basic problems within a business model. So the first one is transparency. Obviously, if you work in a business model that requires supply chain management and you need ready access for certain members of that supply chain who you know 
maybe have to go through an entire process just to get access to it. And then even making changes, et cetera, you have to have auditors for it. You have to have people checking up that none of the supply chain has been, you know, uh, what can I say, corrupted so that, you know, some people are lining their pockets with areas of that supply chain. And this happens all too often. So right there, a huge, huge application to a business model or supply chain model that really affects the global shipping economy, it affects the global supply chain. And blockchain makes that transparent, secure, quick, and uh, accessible. Right there, it changes everything. That's just one model. I mean, when you're looking at retail, you're you're introducing an entirely new um, structure of how to how to engage with products, how to engage with consumers. And even in the Web3 space, consumer is not a word I hear often. It's not about consumer, it's about community. And yeah, this could be a buzzword that's being used to replace consumer because it's got a negative connotation. But what I'm seeing more often than not, and there's some bad actors, but more often than not, what I'm seeing is, a, is it not just a shift in how we implement these technologies to change the business structure, but a shift in how we treat each other within that business structure. And I think blockchain has a big, a big role in that because we no longer need to distrust the people in different positions in different departments. We no longer need to compete to the same extent. Obviously, there's competition naturally, but we don't need to compete with our coworkers. We don't need to compete with that kind of thing because the business model now is the supply and the, the demand is automated. And all we really need to do is decide which way we're pointing this. So there we get into the you know DAO structure, the decentralized autonomous organization, which is a different subject, but it's an example of why implementing blockchain technology into your business model can not only change how your business functions on a practical level, but on an, uh, what can I say, psychological, emotional level, it, it adapts completely to a different paradigm shift. And I think it's going to be an exciting thing to watch in the next few years. I ramble a lot, but bottom line is implementing blockchain technology at this point, the first question you should ask is, do I need it? It's an, it's expensive. It can sometimes be a, a difficult learning curve to overcome. Um, it's not always depending on which chain, which blockchain you use. It's not always carbon neutral. Uh, so there are some negatives that need to be taken into account. But there's also some huge positives on a, on a societal level that it does solve. And so just circling back to in terms of the questions of is it relevant for my business? Like what are some of those questions that people can actually ask themselves to get to an answer if it's relevant for theirs or not? Well, I suppose that comes down to the size of your business. First of all, if you are servicing a small area and a small neighborhood, you really don't need to implement blockchain technology. If your inner team, your core team is 30 to 40 people, you really don't need blockchain technology unless, you know, if you're building from blockchain, that's a different story because a lot of these startups obviously are. But if you're a, um, I'm trying to think of an example, but if you're a mom and pop shop that sells clothing, you know, customized clothing, you're not going to need a transparent digital ledger for people to access to, to notify, uh, to, you know, keep a record of your supply chain. It's not necessary. And you certainly don't need the Web3 marketing skills of, of a huge agency in order to market that into the Web3 community. What's the point? Where it gets fun, though, is a mom and pop shop with two owners and a small supply of interesting customized clothing. You can make an NFT collection now. Why not? I mean, it might not be necessary for your business model, but for a small injection or so, why not? So I guess the answer to your question is anybody can implement blockchain, but the questions you should ask yourself is, do you have the funds to implement it? It's not cheap. Can you run it? Can you sustain it? Because if you're not tech-minded or if you're not educated on how blockchain works or you know what the community standards are, that kind of thing, I mean, just a separate 
conversation, but just IP and copyright alone, if you're an artist, an independent artist, and you start implementing blockchain into your consulting business or your freelance work, there's not really a need for it. But if you're doing it because you know it's a new avenue, you've got to watch out for what questions you're missing. Do I own this copyright? Am I selling my IP? These kinds of things. So there's, there's a ton, a laundry list of questions every business should ask themselves before they implement any blockchain technology. And I can guarantee you that 90% of the businesses that people talk to on a daily basis probably don't need it right now. But that conversation will probably change in the next five years. Uh, I guess what you mentioned from a transparency perspective and um, you know the digital ledger, so there's something that we spoke about recently at our event and talking about data, you know, and ownership of obviously data. And it's, it's so interesting when you start diving into that conversation and giving people an example of, okay, well, when's the last time you went to like a doctor's room and you had to try to remember like all your historic data of GPs that you saw or, um, or whoever, and being able to obviously have that information for yourself or the fact that it lives obviously on the blockchain and it's easily accessible, um, you know, is one good example of being able to, you know, eliminate that, that pain point that all of us obviously, you know, face mm. from that perspective. There's another example of your birth certificate. How often do you not know where that's placed, you know? And if, let's say, there's a fire and, and uh, your house burns down, and you can't access your passport and your birth certificate, you know, that's a massive pain point that obviously you, utilizing blockchain technology uh, can, you know, help eradicate. And are there some, you know, just some other examples that kind of come to mind with regards to that you've seen people implementing or that you would love to see a company kind of create and solve an issue that pains you? I think I think that it's a, it's a... It's a pretty specific question, and I'm going to start the answer with a bit of a broad, uh, broad thing <laughs> cool. that I was just thinking of while you were talking, which is um, it, it's really interesting how it's kind of come full circle because, you know, I'm not going to go into the whole history of how people get names and where names came from and stuff, but the point at which uh, birth certificates got introduced, introduced and, you know, um, identity documents got introduced and everything, well, one point of which from which they came from was when ships would dock at harbors um it was called birthing and when they did that they needed to register with the local um you know authorities local government and that ship would have a name which is why um all ships names are fully in capital and it's the same with people um on their birth certificates your name is fully in capitals so i'm not going to go into some zeitgeist rant or whatever like that but what what i find interesting now is you know that was the first step in sharing your data and allowing your identity to be owned in a way so now in a court of justice you know your birth certificate is essentially being tried and you're attached to it that kind of thing and your identity documents are your identity when we start introducing the internet into the conversation then your identity becomes whatever you want it to be to an extent but at the same time, we've developed email addresses as part of our identity. I mean, we literally give our email address out for every single significant transaction in our entire day. Uh, banks have our email address. Uh, you know, the local transport authorities have your email address. It doesn't matter who, and they, you constantly get contact through it, your phone number. These things are now part of our identity. So now what we have is a new wave of identity, which can be our wallet address which comes with a level of anonymity. So, you know, in a perfect world, the example I'd like to see, the use case I'd like to see is do away with your birth certificates, do away with your identity documents. And um, who knows, maybe in 50 years time to hundred years time, people will be walking around with the name AA123 or something like that. 
Um, you know, Elon Musk's already started that kind of. But um, He's imagine 100% if you started that. There you go. So imagine if <laughs> imagine if your name actually belonged to you from now on, and for every significant transaction throughout your day, from your bank to everything, it was just an anonymous wallet address. They don't know it's you transacting. They don't know what your activity looks like. They just know that this wallet with this cryptographic identity key is the thing that's doing it. There's some very big ramifications that come from that. I think for me personally, mostly positive, true freedom of movement, et cetera. But there's also some, some danger that comes with anonymity um, in the grander scheme of things. So on a, on a broader use case scale, I'd, I'd love to see the point where we come full circle and we don't need birth certificates or identity documents anymore. But then again, we are then wholly reliant on technological transactions. So it's, it's an interesting debate either way. I apologize for not answering your question more specifically. No, I think that's what it's about, though, is being able to paint a picture, you know, because it is, it's very interesting and there will be a massive debate around the subject. I mean, I just think in terms of, you know, uh, we've moved completely digital, like, well, not completely, but that is the direction. I mean, if you think about, Mostly, obviously, yeah. how you how you spend your day, you kind of need to think, okay, in the future, if uh, what we've had traditionally is not serving us in the most efficient way, for how businesses are set up to run and governments are set up, you know, to to govern, then, you know, surely we need to think about, okay, cool, well, how's it going to be easier for all of us and um, and to make our lives easier, you know, um, because it is, it's a pain. There's massive challenges in the way things have been done historically and us trying to obviously, you know, continue that is difficult and it would make sense to relook at the model and the framework and say, okay, well, what makes sense for the future? And I mean, you can look at it in terms of, I guess, what they're doing in the Middle East and, and Saudi. I don't know if you've seen the Saudi, um, that that wall. The line, yeah. The line, the line, you know, that's so futuristic minority kind of report I think, stuff. I think, I, exactly. I think, these are, I think there's some large scale, interesting in, innovations that are coming, um, I think. I think overall, it's odd what is chosen to be focused on when you've got on the data side of things on the data question, when you've got mass political campaigns being run off of the back of data piracy, such as Cambridge Analytica for the Trump campaign and for the Brexit vote, people know about them. It's not it's not a private secret anymore. These are public domain, but they're massively under uh, represented. These are big problems. The fact that your data can be used to manipulate your psychological state of mind and can essentially skew an important countrywide decision in a certain way just based off of your Facebook account. It's dangerous. And look, I'm not somebody who's worried about my data personally being stolen simply because I'm not doing anything that interesting. If you want to go watch, if you want to find out that I watched a documentary on the birth of the Colosseum in Rome last night, be my guest, but it's not going to really affect any political motivation on a large scale, it's dangerous. And um, I think that blockchain technology sort of holds a key in a way, again, it depends on how it's utilized, that will allow us to avoid those kinds of mistakes in the future. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be interesting how things progress. Look, I think this is, you know, I guess a question that I asked and you've given some examples, but I think just to reframe it is in terms of your experience, what are some good examples of, of companies that have added blockchain to their models and are doing really useful things with it? Sure. Um, so I think on a more specific level, seeing the Nike campaigns with NFTs and how they've implemented, and I'm not going to go as far as to say Nike's implemented blockchain technology, 
what they've done is they've seen an opening in the market for a, you know, um, I'll call it a respected brand um, to, to a respected clothing brand to occupy and sort of mix their consumerism with this creative new technology. And they've kind of really cornered the NFT market in that way and very successfully. Um, I realize I'm wearing Nike vest at the same time. I'm not, I'm not endorsed <laughs> by Nike, but if you feel like it, Nike, That's please great. let me know. Uh, but um, they've done a really good job um, in terms of how to move into the NFT space very well. Do I think that Nike has implemented any other sort of blockchain technology? I couldn't tell you. And I, I, I don't think it would be necessary at this point, to be honest. But um, it's, I'm going to be honest with you. In terms of businesses implementing blockchain technology, I don't think there are that many successful use cases to brag about yet or to talk about, which is exactly why I say 90% of businesses, when they ask the question, should I implement blockchain? The answer is going to be no. It's expensive, time consuming. And again, the learning curve is quite extensive. So where I, I think I want to reframe the question in the way that which industries are implementing blockchain technology. And that's a bit, it's a bit more interesting when you look at that answer, because you get the creative industries mostly are doing this. The service industries, I mean, the ticketing industry alone is starting to catch up now. The real estate industry is starting to implement blockchain transactions. A lot of these are on a surface level. Um, and I'm not a developer. I'm not a blockchain builder myself. So I couldn't tell you on a technological level which businesses are implementing blockchain successfully as a, as a you know, SAS or BAS. But the industries that are implementing blockchain technology on numerous levels are flourishing. Uh, even on the brink of a huge recession, you see the creative industries are are taking on NFTs and making it their own. You see numerous supply chains are starting to implement blockchain technology. I don't have any numbers on this, but I do know that certain companies that are in charge of the Ugandan coffee uh, supply chain are implementing blockchain technology because what they found, um, unfortunately, is a lot of the harvesters in Uganda are being, no nice way to say it, shafted out of um, genuine product and genuine income because the people who are directly above them are sort of blocking a certain level of supply and then the supply chain numbers are a little bit fudged. So through that, they pocket a certain profit. The people are actually doing the hard work and the rest of the supply chain are suffering for it. With the implementation of blockchain technology, I know that that has been solved in a massive way by allowing that, trans that transparency and immediately invalidating any transaction that doesn't line up with the rest of the data. So where we have the automatic validation of data in blockchain technology, it's interesting how that can be used against corruption. And that's happening successfully in the industries where corruption is rife. I mean, I'm not going to get into the music industry right now, but if you ask Warner Music or Sony Music, and I apologize, Warner and Sony, if anybody's listening, but if you ask them to implement blockchain technology on a, on a serious level in their business model right now, I don't think their stakeholders are going to be very happy about that. And it's the same with any streaming service. It's the same with any major corporation. You can't ask these huge corporations to, to completely turn their, their business models on their head because of this new technology, which is yet to be tested on a large scale. So not many successful use cases are, are public enough or have the enough, what can I say, have enough marketing behind it to personally for me to know about it to that extent. Um, I'm sure there are businesses with private blockchains have implemented quite successfully, et cetera, but on a large scale public, uh, public domain, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head, unfortunately. From an industry perspective, uh, perspective that 
gives us a nice insight. I mean, I know, as you, you mentioned, logistics is, you know, massive. I know a lot of logistics have started to really focus on it. I spoke to someone the other day. I don't know how valid this is, but they know quite a lot of people in the banking sector and they are starting to appoint a lot of like blockchain advisors, you know, or, yeah. Um, yeah, or whatever. Engineers. I studied, Just... I studied with a, I studied with a high up banker uh, at Oxford. I studied with a guy who was asked to do the course by his, his um, colleagues. Um, he was a, a financial advisor for some massive accounts um, at a large bank, which I'm not going to reveal actually more than one large bank. Um, but I can't, it was in Europe. And um he did the Oxford blockchain strategy course with me. And he was saying how he knows nothing about blockchain, but he was asked to come do this course because the banks are listening. They're taking huge note and they're, they're investing in the people they want. They, they believe can take this technology on and understand it within their, within their circle. So I agree with you completely. It's, it's, um, it's very hush hush because every, everybody wants to be first. Um, mm. So it's like, Oh, we've been in this for years when really they studied up on it last week. Nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But yeah, it's the interest is there. Sure, no, hundred um, percent. So, and then just in terms of the challenges, so I th think we we touched a little bit on that. But if we really go dive a little bit deeper in terms of the challenges incorporating blockchain for businesses, uh, so if we if we think about it from a um, like a, from a simple English perspective, because I know people will. You know, we might talk a little bit more from a tech side, so we need to just take consideration of some audience members. So can you, you know, explain the challenges in simple English, or give an example from your experience that could maybe illustrate it, and also what has worked for you in the past to solve those challenges or, or what you've seen companies doing to help actually solve those challenges? Sure. Um, so, yeah, the obvious challenges are scalability. Uh, so there's something called the blockchain trilemma. And this this mostly occurs with the idea of building a blockchain. Um, and it's uh, speed, scalability, and oof, what is the last one? It's speed, scalability, and I want to say cost, but I don't think that is. I'll double check it now. But um, it's very similar to the, the same trilemma you'd experience with a business. Um, or implementing blockchain with, uh, into a business model, you know, is it is it going to be is it going to improve the speed to the extent that it's necessary? Is it not too expensive to implement? What's the point of it if it's you know if it's going to drive enough of a growth, you know, scalability wise, it doesn't make sense. Um, and then the other aspect to consider again is the carbon imprint. Um, how is this going to affect our business's carbon um, footprint? And do we want to take that chance? I mean, this. A lot of blockchains that are being developed and that already exist um, that are completely carbon neutral. And my my um, they're limited in their capabilities, a lot of them, but some of them are really innovative and really quite advanced. So my my fingers always point to them when I'm suggesting. Either way, what I found is, and I say this with, with care, but most of the businesses that have an initial consultation with me don't need blockchain technology. They just don't. Most of the businesses that consult with me end up going more down a marketing route and implementing an NFT collection or something to sort of uh, grab the attention of a new demographic or just stay up to date with the latest innovations. One of the more interesting projects I've been a part of 
was um, in the wildlife industry. Uh, I say wildlife industry within the, the game reserve industry around the world. Um, there's a company called PESA, which is the Pan-African Association of Zoos and something, which I can't remember right now, but essentially it's a, a collection of all the, uh, the uh, of zoos and, and um, facilities that house endangered animals around the world. And they sort of have a, a governing body that um, make sure that the standards are kept too and these animals are looked after. And I know that zoos get a bad rap, but there's a lot of really great facilities that are essentially doing, you know, breaking their backs throughout COVID and throughout numerous um, challenges, especially the social media backlash of it, to save very endangered species. And I personally support any facility that does that successfully and responsibly. But um, the project was interesting because saving these species and keeping these endangered species going requires a lot of uh, breeding a lot of careful breeding because as soon as you start messing with bloodlines in a, in a way that um, that endangers that animal's ability to survive, you know, through deformity or something like that, because you can't breed family with family, um, it's dangerous. So what you need is a true and honest record of, of breeding. Um, this was their parent. This was, you know, um, these are their siblings, etc. And um, a lot of the time, that can be corrupted so that people can sell it. You know, I won't say which countries are the worst or anything, but certain countries do sell brothers uh, or a brother and a sister cheetah, say they're separate for breeding purposes. And those cheetahs can fetch hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, um, because they're so endangered. And a lot of zoos want to buy them so that they can breed them and keep the line going. And if you lie about that, it's, it's very, very dangerous for the animal and you know that line ends very quickly so in the interest of saving endangered animals we need those records to be honest true and you know be validated blockchain technology is being implemented in that industry in order to make sure that the the main people of the payzab association not just payzab but you know uh, other associations too are and disney animal kingdom is uh, you know in talks to do something like this as well it's all in talks at the moment but Implementing it means that these bloodlines of these endangered animals stay as honest, it stays true, and the data is validated, which means a very significant increase in the bloodline success of these bred endangered animals. And I think that that alone is a use case for me that's been really useful to understand how valuable blockchain technology can be for a real-life application and saving lives. That's, um, that's super interesting. Um, quite deep as well that's yeah know. i mean oh, i didn't mean to go so deep but it, it's it's a really <laughs> flexible way and it's not an well, interesting sure, no, people think of but it is <laughs> yeah it's out there <laughs> it does everything uh, blockchain is supposed to do just in an industry sure. people don't usually think of yeah i, I guess I, but i mean and if we just look at like you know some challenges that with regards to blockchain that you know people may know about mm. which is obviously lack of adoption the rising cost is Security, I guess, maybe security concerns, which is interesting, but I think that's more the stigma um, yeah. around around it. And you've got obviously a few a few others. I mean, interoperability. That's that's another thing. I've got a few that I read up on. So I mean, if you if you just had to like take, I guess, some of the known ones that come up time and time again. What are like the most mm. often, I guess, challenges that are spoken about maybe online that you see or people posting about? Is there maybe misconceptions? Um, and uh, yeah. Happily, my favorite, I mean, when I say favorite, I say so sarcastically, but one of the most interesting things for me is when I hear people say that, you know, cryptocurrency is a hoax or 
and it's fair enough. I, I do not judge anybody who has these preconceived notions. It's perfectly fine. But um, I find it funny that people are so willing to, to distrust cryptocurrency and blockchain technology as a whole, um, yet are so willing to trust banks. And the difference here is the in, there have been rug pulls. I am not denying that there have been rug pulls. Um, but to, to the banks have very recently and very frequently foreclosed on people who have given them money. The banks have um, historically screwed over the populations without hesitation. I'm not going to get political about it. I just think, you know, Bitcoin was literally born out of the 2008 housing crisis. So when I say born out of, I mean, it was being built before then, but the rise of Bitcoin is specifically due to that. The NFT boom, and I don't know if anybody remembers this, but the NFT and cryptocurrency boom kind of, for me, the conversation started when Wall Street Bets started manipulating the market on the GameStop short squeeze, uh, 2021, I think it was, or 2020. Those conversations can't be overlooked. I mean, the whole reason that these vigilante coins and currencies are coming to popularity is because they're an alternative to the already existing model, which is uh, really reliant on some elitist uh, one percenters who don't really care about what happens to the common man who works 12 hours a day, you know, man or woman, apologies, but common man or woman, you know, they don't care. So it just I blows my mind when cryptocurrency is seen as this dangerous thing when when the alternative is already a dangerous thing. It's proven. So I'd rather take my chances. Interoperability is an interesting one because you see a new cryptocurrency every day. You see a new blockchain every day. I mean, God, I've been approached by, and I don't mind it at all, but the amount of blockchains that have approached me for everything from marketing to just talking um, to see what I think about it, I, I mean, it's at least 20 to 30 a week. Um, and these are new blockchains being built. Okay, that's an exaggeration. Maybe it's more like 10 a week, but still. Um, <laughs> these are new blockchains. And these blockchains themselves, a lot of times, have internal governance tokens. They have uh, their own protocols. So it's it's incredible the innovations coming out. But now what we need to think about where our interoperability comes in is these are all separate. You know, not all of them work together. Um, some of them are layer two, some of them are layer threes. And on a non-technical level, that just means they're built on top of existing layer one protocols like Ethereum, not Bitcoin, but Ethereum. And they don't function with each other as well as we would like. And the more we get of these, the more choices people get and the more choices people make, the less chance for interoperability we have. So these challenges are not just immediate challenges, they're long-term challenges, which are these are ninety percent of them going to fail? That's the general consensus, and then the ten percent that remains are going to be mass adopted. Or we're going to ma- consistently mass adopt hundreds of different blockchains a day. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I think that's unlikely. It seems impractical to me. But interoperability, um, security issues. You know, we've had a lot of hacks in cryptocurrency. We've also had a lot of bank hacks. So what's the difference? It's just another form of currency, and people are getting very educated in terms of how to hack properly and um, how to do so efficiently. So where, where there is value, there will always be theft. It just it just will be that way. It just depends on where you want your theft kept. I mean, personally for me, um, I'm not going to disclose whether I hold cryptocurrency or not, but if I did, I would keep it on a cold storage wallet, um, a physical cold storage wallet. Um, and I mean, you don't get safer than that in, in my personal opinion. Yeah, I, I'm rambling now, but Interoperability, security seems to be an interest. Those are interesting curves for me. But the biggest, the absolute biggest thing I've seen every day of my life 
biggest barrier to entry is lack of education. The learning curve is substantial. Doug, thanks, man. That gives our, um, our listeners something to think about just in terms of trying to actually dive into like what are the limitations or what are the challenges right now um, that's preventing obviously mainstream adoption and us to progress blockchain you know further into a lot of different businesses. Um, and then mm. just in terms of how, how businesses um, with blockchain models help close the digital divide, can you you know maybe talk to the loop of blockchain, digital communities, creator economies, and you know ultimately then the hopefully the digital divide closing. I know you mentioned that you don't think blockchain in its, um, by itself you know can can just close the digital divide. So what really uh, needs to happen from at least the models perspective? that blockchain provides can help with that it's about it's about again pointing the focus and i suppose on being more specific again so on its most basic level i think blockchain should be used to implement banking alternatives for the unbanked as soon as you have that you have a basis of value to build your life from how many times do um, upper class communities and middle class communities can enjoy the benefits of a credit score to buy things they wouldn't be able to, to better their life that they usually wouldn't be able to do so without the credit. Um, without a bank account, that's impossible. What we have is an alternative to banking with all of the features and all the positives of banking. And implementing that first and foremost, I think is key. Because once you do that, you open the door for creating platforms for new innovation to come from these third, uh, third world nations and from these third world innovators. And um, a lot of the creativity is kind of locked up and marginalized and geographically isolated in these places, and they don't need to be. You see, you always see an, an interesting, and it's used as a novelty many times, but you always see an interesting story of this, this, these kids from Zimbabwe who are building windmills or generating renewable energy resources. They might be 13, 17, whatever, but they're inventing. And if they had large scale production behind them, they could solve a lot of problems. And it's because they live those problems daily. So where there's struggle, there's, you know, there's the opportunity to overcome. And when you, you support the innovation coming from these areas, you sort of breed that ability to solve those problems that affect a lot more people than you maybe the first world understands. So in terms of an actual model, I think it'll change depending on the problem, depending on the area. I know for a fact that South Africa, for example, not just South Africa, but I think with Africa, the number was staggering. I think it was about 60% of the country. I might be wrong on that. I'll double check it, but 60% of the country is unbanked. I mean, that means that there's no trace of their, their value on a financial level. There's no trace of their credit. There's no trace of anything like that. And Another area of the digital divide is not having a device that can access the internet. And I mean, imagine imagine you in the first world not having a device that can A, provide you with income through your remote working, you know, for those who are lucky enough to do so, you know, income through remote working, connection with your family and friends, the ability to travel and still, you know, sustain that income, access to information alone, collaboration with other people who are innovating as well, who can maybe provide some value to the project you're working on no access to those devices that facilitate that on a global scale really isolates you. And you can still get the same things in a close community setting, but not to the same degree standard or um, level of experience. So the digital divide is more than just bolstering the financial or the socioeconomic status of, a, of, a, of an area. It also comes down to the socio-political, socioeconomic status of an area or a person. The digital divide affects that heavily. So wherever we can implement solutions that just slightly reduce that problem, 
I think it's a win. I mean, just like building a school in a remote area where the kids can come together, it reduces everything from violence to lack of education to abuse. Having having just that central node of collaboration and, and community really makes a huge difference in a small community. So those initiatives make sense. And when you add blockchain, suddenly you get this accessibility. I mean, obviously you need the devices first, but once you have the devices, once you have blockchain, once you have banking, that's accessible to everyone. Um, you suddenly have the, you give those marginalized communities a channel to access the global economy. And what we've done with the global economy already, I mean, the first, what we've done with the global economy already is we've created huge opportunities for ourselves. I mean, myself, I'm very lucky enough to be able to travel while working because of the devices I have access to and the Wi-Fi I have access to. Um, and that's, sort of snowballs over time because of the sustainable uh, it's sustainable but it's also generating uh, experience for me it's generating a lot of value for me to have access to that whereas somebody in a remote area of zimbabwe doesn't have that same privilege beyond the privilege side of it they don't have that same access if they're it could be very much well be far more innovative than i am but they don't have the platform to to share that so I think there's a lot of ways where blockchain can be implemented to sort of bridge those gaps, not just in devices, but once those devices are implemented in the platforms they provide, allowing, um, you know, venture capitalists to understand that there's a problem here. And now instead of being approved to send dollars over with a conversion rate, everything like that, just simple as a five second Bitcoin transaction, suddenly they've funded a school in Southeast Asia. It's these um, these solutions are far and wide. So my brain always spins when I get a question like that. But blockchain has huge applications to the marginalized communities. Yeah, that's so interesting, man. And I don't know why, but like my my mind went to um, this image that I don't know if you've seen that image where there's that uh, kid on um, he's basically on a street and he's using a street lamp as his light to uh, finish his homework and he's just sitting there because yeah. like that's his access to um you know obviously that the electricity um in in this community but yeah anyway that's exactly. just obviously just a bit of a side thing obviously no, it's different it, to it, digital it makes, but you know what i mean that's exactly you know? what it is that's exactly what it is it's a great illustration of of you know the the struggles that some people have to overcome to enjoy the basic freedoms that we do on a technological level, you know, he needs a street light, whereas we've got a torch on our phone. I mean, just sure. a, it's an arbitrary example, but still. Yeah, 100%, man. So then I think just, um, I mean, look, that's a great place to kind of go into some of our closing questions. And generally, what we like to do is just leave the audience with some uh, places to go where they can you know, to actually learn about whether it's blockchain or the digital divide or framework. So are there any uh, specific resources or um, places or books that you can uh, recommend people go check out just to upskill from a blockchain perspective and maybe learn about, I know you, um, or for the creator economy and obviously digital divide, is there anything that jumps out that you can uh, point them in that direction? 100%. Um, the, uh, I don't have the author's name on hand. My brain's not working that way right now, but the Bitcoin Standard, um, very, very good book that describes you know everything from top to toe of Bitcoin. And it was one of my original um, uh, one of my original resources when I first started with crypto and understanding it. Um, I wish I remembered the author's name. Um, in terms of online resources, Blockworks has got a great daily newsletter um, and uh, they've got up-to-date resources you know they're accessed by 
thousands, if not tens of thousands of industry leaders. So Blockworks is fantastic. Um, my inevitable newsletter um, run by Tiago, um, Tiago Amaral, they, they, they do a really great job in curating the latest updates in mm. blockchain and mainly the NFT space, to be fair, but um, really great resource there. That, that's um, inevitable, huh? Yeah, inevitable, exactly. Yeah. And um, one, of the, one of the really great resources I always use is LinkedIn, actually. It requires some curation at first, but 99.9% .9 of my um, useful information that's really helped me in my career has come from following some of the leading industry experts on LinkedIn. So it's all about connecting with the right people, making sure that your feed is constantly updated with the latest info on um, uh, blockchain, NFTs, cryptocurrency. And what's really nice is you're hearing it from the horse's mouth because not only are these people telling you what's happening in the forefront of the industry, they are the people building the forefront of the industry. So you know there's no you know, media bias or journalistic um, creativity going on. You are hearing, they're posting like, try to develop this um, this coin today and uh, messed up one of the, the node creations or whatever developer speak you want to talk about. <laughs> you know that that's something interesting that's happening in the blockchain space and you're hearing it from the person building it. So. LinkedIn is always my go-to for um, for the latest updates. And there's always so many great documents shared. Um, and again, attend webinars, listen to podcasts. There's a podcast, uh, I can't remember the host's name again, I'm terrible with names, but On Chain um, is a great podcast yeah. to listen to for, for blockchain-related uh, industries. And I'm trying to think of another podcast I listen to quite regularly, but the name's off my Bankless. Mind. I think they got Bankless. 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 Is a good one yes, well. Bankless. Bankless is a good one. And there's, I mean, there's every day you're gonna find a million new resources. So my my tip for that would be to, you know, I wanted to learn everything immediately when I first started in the industry, and I very quickly burned myself out. So my my tip would be with all these resources is find something to focus on, get a rudimentary understanding of it, and move to the next thing. So whether it be crypto, NFTs, um, you know, blockchain and legal, uh, choose one, get good at it and, you know, move on. Um, Cause I used to read like three different fields a day and it's really, it helped, but it also was very draining. That's amazing. Cause I was actually just gonna ask you, um, what's the, you know, from a closing perspective, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given or you've heard, you know, within, could be actually within the space or could just be in general that you can give to the best audience. piece of advice the best piece of advice i like you know it's different to the life motto things that's a that's a me thing but best piece of advice i've had from a community member and it's not their quote but they gave it to me which is remember that the people building in this space and the people you look up to are no smarter than you and that always that always stuck with me because you know it goes hand in hand with the other quote i would use which was from dave grohl from the Foo fighters which was don't be intimidated by your heroes be inspired by them same thing when you when you're talking to somebody who, who's got fifty thousand followers on linkedin and they are polygon's founder i haven't spoken to polygon's founders so it's not a slight at him or anything don't be intimidated by those people because they're no smarter than you uh, they might have more experience more education that kind of thing but in terms of the problem solving skills and basic co basic cognitive ability chances are you guys are on the same level so feel free to talk to people and connect in the space and i think that you'll be handsomely rewarded for it amazing well that that's a perfect place to wrap up doug thank you that was a super interesting conversation man um and lots of lots for our community to digest and 
to go look at obviously what you pointed out we'll leave all that in the show notes and uh, yeah keen to have you again on the show and we can dive into further topics thanks i love i love being here thanks brandon appreciate it and uh, i love what you guys are building so it's a pleasure to be a part of it